Hey folks, welcome back to The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the pundit, and I'm here today, as always, with my longtime comrade and integral psychotherapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt, who is The Shrink. Hey, Reverend Dr. Brother Keith, how you doing this morning? Great, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, just drying up after a rain. It's a beautiful morning here and good to be with you as always. You can find out more about Dr. Keith and me at our respective websites. He's at drkeithwitt.com and I do my work out of Integral Life and also dailyevolver.com. So I have a blog and podcast there. Keith has videos, audios, um, books, and so forth. And uh, we'd love to have you check it out. And also uh, welcome you again. And thank you for listening. It's really deeply gratifying to both of us that our work is being listened to and, and, and is helping people. We get a number of questions and, and comments. You can write to us on the Daily Evolver site. There's a little orange button where you can leave a voicemail. And you can also write to us via me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. And actually, today's topic is one that came from a listener who wrote us and asked us if integral theory and the practice of integral psychotherapy has anything to say about this perennial topic of this special kind of misery called <laughs> the midlife crisis. And, and Keith, I know you've written about this and in your you know, over 40,000 uh, psychotherapy sessions, I'm imagining you came up with many clients who had some version of this. So let's just start there, and I'll ask you, what's the state of the midlife crisis in our world today, and is it alive and well? How are we doing here? <laughs> I, I want to I echo, uh, I also am deeply grateful for the people that are, to you guys listening, and uh, to your comments and your requests and so on. And this is, you know, Jeff and I love doing this. So, and I, I, we love it that you're enjoying it and sharing it with us. Right on. You know, there's, when you say midlife crisis, pretty much everybody has a vision that comes to mind. And the vision that comes to mind is a man or a woman, 40s to 60s, that um, has some profound problem happen. Uh, they leave their husband, their husband leaves them, wife leaves them, they get fired. They get disenchanted. They become sick of it. They see some, some incredible uh, problem that they feel a sense of responsibility that they want to address, some issues that they want to dedicate their life to and so on. And it, it profoundly disrupts their life. And then out of that, that disruption comes a reorganization. And so that's the midlife crisis. It was observed uh, when people started observing life stages in the, the last century was speculated upon by the psychoanalysts first, interestingly. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Freud and Jung both had different in interpretations of it. Y Jung believed that the individuation process, integration into adult identity, happened in the midlife, and that for some people it, it constituted a crisis as they began to face their own death and face the demands of the archetypes that they were discovering, that they were manifestations of. Hmm. Freud, of course, was more depressed. <laughs> as always, <laughs> for him it was, yeah, we're, we're beginning to realize we're not going to live forever. We're going to encounter our own death. And having to come to grips for that is quite difficult for human self-awareness. 
Because Freud noticed, as, as it seems obvious to all of us, but not particularly obvious the first part of the century, that human beings are the only people that can contemplate their death, yeah. be aware of it. And so a crisis would happen. The term midlife crisis first appeared in the literature in 1965 in an article by a guy named Elliot Yaquin, Jaquin, and you know he basically echoed the psychoanalytic people. And, and so they've been, done a lot of research about it. And indeed, conservatively, 8 to 15% of adults in that age cohort in the 40s to the 60s has some major problem happen that they have to reorganize their life around, and it's a challenge. One researcher, a guy like a lot in UCLA, Levinson, when he asked people about it, 85% of the people said something like that happened. Um, but of course, the academics like to argue, so a lot of academics said, well, Stress is not the same as crisis. You know, crisis really disrupts everything, causes you to reorganize. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, that's true. That 8 to, eight to 15 percent of people, you know, they enter a period where there's something, some major problem, disease, break, breakup, uh, uh, financial crisis, that takes years, you know, three to seven years sometimes to resolve. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times this drives people into therapy. So you're so, saying that it's more like, 17% did you say that actually have what we would call a crisis while 70 or 80% report something like that? Or, I mean, is yeah, that it's, it's how people identify it. Yeah. You know, like some, so one researcher says uh, major stressors are not the same as crisis. I, I, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, I've done 55,000 plus therapy sessions. Um, if somebody, the concept of a of a of a of a of a life crisis and a midlife crisis is is a very useful one. Mm -hmm. And someone comes in and he says, "I'm having a midlife crisis." I'm not going to say, "Oh, you're not really having a midlife crisis. <laughs> you're just having some, you know, a stressor." Right. I go, "Sure, you're having a midlife crisis," and because it gives him some context, right? Of just how, and, and also, I think part of what psychotherapy. It's always helped me. I realize I'm not the only one. Yes. You know, this maybe is just part of what's supposed to happen. And there's a roadmap. Yeah. And there's a map. Yeah. And this there's is a where, way out. This is where an integral understanding of midlife crisis enters in. And now everything gets a lot more interesting and a lot more complicated, which, of course, is what I love about integral psychology. It's more interesting. It's more complicated. And ultimately, it's more useful. Yeah. So, yes, it's useful to understand that I'm having something that a lot of people have had and that there's a roadmap to how you resolve these things, how you resolve midlife crises. Um, and the roadmap uh, is a developmental roadmap because to, to understand how to deal well with midlife crisis, we kind of have to understand the human being's relationship with stress and with crisis starting from before birth and extending to death. Because the difference between um, a crisis or a stressor that makes us stronger and one that makes us weaker and diminishes us is how we resolve it. If we resolve a, a, a stressor or a crisis to a point where we are more coherent, we're more integrated, uh, we're stronger and wiser, it strengthens us. If we uh, decompensate, and we reorganize at a level where we're more messed up, we're more we're struggling in a, in a in a different sense. We're weaker as a result. Mm -hmm. This starts uh, in, the, in the third trimester, for instance. 
if a mother is, is, is stressed, calms herself down, you know, is able to self-soothe to a sense of equanimity, gets stressed again, but can self-soothe. If her nervous system can do that, that child is born more able to self-regulate emotion, more likely um, to have a healthy developmental uh, arc, has a better immunological system, nervous system, and cardiovascular system. But unfortunately, if that mother gets stressed out a lot and doesn't know how to regulate, when that child's born, their immune system's compromised, their cardiovascular system, their nervous system, they're more emotionally reactive. They have more work to do. Yeah. So that's before birth. Wow. And then after birth, there's one stress after another. Birth is a stressor. You know, birth is a life crisis. Right. And we have reorganized so that we're, we're better, we're more connected and, and we're wiser and so on. Learning how to crawl is a life crisis. And the other thing about the life crises from an integral understanding that is real important is that they're always relational. They have to do with our relationships with ourselves and our relationships with other people, our relationships with spirit, our relationships with yeah. the world. Well, I think this is just basically a principle of evolution in general, is yeah. that conflict and crises is what gives us a chance to reorganize into something that's more intelligent and more complex that, and that includes the components that were in conflict. Yes. Yeah. As, as above, so below. Yeah. So in evolution, we have punctuated equilibrium. We have an ecosystem going along pretty smoothly, and then a big crisis comes. In the cr crisis of that ecosystem, there's a lot of damage, but there's a reorganization out of that ecosystem, and out of that reorganization comes novelty. You know, the, the KT boundary 65 million years ago wiped out most of the species on the planet. It's interesting when people speculate about post-apocalyptic uh, modernity. Mm -hmm. They say, well, all that's going to be left is rats and, and cockroaches. Right. Well, interestingly, after the KT boundary, what was really left was small mammals and insects. Right, you know, like moles. And yeah. Moles and mice and stuff. Yeah, and then in the next 65 million years, the mammals, you know, they, they expanded. Yeah. So it, there's an expansion. And so that's how the individual works. Also. Yeah, well, and this is also archetypal. I mean, you know, the hero goes out, gets, you know, knocked down, finds somebody to help him up, and becomes a better person, learns a lesson. And this, I mean, this really, I remember the point in my life, and maybe it was in some of my early psychotherapy, where I realized that, wait a second, bad things aren't not supposed to happen. Bad things are supposed to happen uh, because they do. <laughs> you know, I guess that's a good reason. And and then, and so the question is, how do I respond? Not, you know, how do I beat myself up and try to never make that happen again? And just, I mean, there's this whole different orientation of, you know, how can I just be bigger and be able to sort of handle this? And that changed everything. There's a Harvard medical professor named Martha Stark that's written a lot about this. Um, and she quotes Paracelsus that says the difference between a poison in a medicine is a dose. And that's true for stress also. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's relational is a big deal. Because when a crisis happens, the crisis always involves a problem with relationships with myself and relationships with other people. My habitual pattern of handling my interior relationships and my relationships with other people will determine how I go about this crisis. If I have a secure attachment as an infant, you know, if I have a, a parent that's contingent and present and congruent, my nervous system feels like I'm pretty safe and I'm pretty secure. 
Okay, so the child essentially shares the parent's nervous system the first year, but then individuates and begins to have problems and so on, and then internalizes and has kind of the same relationship interiorly that they had with parent. If they were secure with parent, they're secure with self. And so then they, the child, is, if they grow up in a fair environment, that's a secure environment, when they go inward, they discover something, discover a self that's a pretty secure self. If they don't have a secure uh, relationship, if the, if the caregiver is, 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 is absent, um, if there's neglect, if there's abuse, if there's a lack of contingency, then the child doesn't feel secure in being able to create the kind of contact that they want. And when they individuate, they don't have an interior sense of security when they go inside. And they try to avoid that, that interior distress. And we find a lot of the pathologies of modernity, people, addiction, compulsion, um, um, a lot of projective identification, um, you know, compulsive success, all that kind of stuff is people trying to avoid an inner sense of self that's disturbed, that's distressed, mm -hmm. a relationship that needs to be healed. Now, some people actually can succeed their way or relate their way or coast or whatever to a point in their life, and they're, now they're hitting your 40s and your 60s, and now there's certain kinds of predictable life events. One, your body's deteriorating. So, you know, you either take better care of it or worse care of it, and you get some signs, sometimes illnesses. Relationships stop coasting. You know, marriages, you have to work to, to keep them good. And if not, you haven't done the work, they're beginning to disintegrate. You generally get about 80% of your job growth and your income growth in the first 10 years of a profession. And so when you hit your 40s, you kind of have maxed out on your profession. You have a sense of, this, I'm going to do this or I'm going to not do this. And there was one study that showed that, that people that changed professions before 40 tended to be happier between 40 and 60. Hmm. anticipated needing to have more meaning at work and made the adjustments sooner rather than later. Yeah. There you go. I mean, the body's going. I mean, there, there is some, there, the, the midlife crisis, it's a, it's a real thing. And it's you just described thing. So my body's going. I realize, I, you know, I don't care how hard I work out, I'm not going to get better at this point. I'm you not going to be 25 again. And then I know I'm not. There's some things I'm realizing I'm never going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm never, you know, there's just things I'm not going to do. And, and there was a time in my life when I thought I'd end up, I'd do everything, you know, or at least there were no limits. And so I see that, that there's an actual finiteness. And I, I do the math. Um, and then as you, you're right, you know, relationships, they're easy at the beginning because you got a lot of juice and fireworks going. And then, you know, that's in, the, in what you just said about the careers, you know, it is, it's depressing. Well, yeah, it's, it's potentially, and as we grow older, we have friends who get sick or die. We yeah. have children or, or family members. When the youngest child becomes five, it's a huge event for a mother. And when the youngest child becomes 11 and when the youngest child leaves home, these often uh, uh, create crises for a woman in that it gives her more free energy, but that puts more pressure on her relationship to support her individuating herself. Um, and, you know, if a relationship doesn't rise to the occasion, that tends to, again, it's a relational issue that tends to separate the couple. As the couple becomes separate, then they begin to go into some of the classic uh, uh, events that people associate with midlife crisis. You know, going for the hot young lover, uh, wanting the sports car, wanting the new, you know, those kinds of things. Right. And these things happen. Okay. Now, depending upon how securely connected you are with yourself and with other people, um, you either get a deeper sense of self, you know, you move more towards a man of wisdom or the woman of wisdom um, archetypes, uh, 
You know, you, you, you integrate the, in, the hero's journey language, you begin to reconcile with the mother and the father into another organization, or you don't. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you tend to put yourself back into an endless cycle. You know, you know, uh, and we've seen this with people, particularly with narcissistic type people who just want to keep cycling through youth until finally after about 60, it gets a little bit weird. Right. Uh, <laughs> and also because we all live so long, midlife is expanded. You know, you can have a midlife crisis at 75 now because we're yeah. all living a long time and we're, and we're relatively healthy a lot of this. And, and so there's a lot of – now, when people come in with a problem with this, all this – so, so you notice how we're, we're dealing with this from an integral perspective. There's lines and levels mm-hmm. um, and how far progressed you are in certain lines, particularly the integration of defenses line of development is going to determine a lot how you meet this. How you understand your relationships with yourself and with other people, you know, ultimately, we're always connected with all the parts of ourselves and we're always connected with other people. We're always connected with God. But what pathology does and injury does is it causes us to have a subjective experience of disconnection. Mm -hmm. And out of those disconnections comes distress and panic and Mm -hmm. out of distress and panic comes symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're wise enough, we ask people for help because this is what people do. We all help each other. Mm -hmm. And if it's a crisis, generally the crises that are negotiated into strength, into post-traumatic success, into more resilience, are crises where people find a certain deeper sense of an authentic self, a deeper sense of service to the world, a deeper sense of meaning on the other side. Yeah. And a deeper yeah. sense of relationship with other people. Yeah. So that just basically covers the quadrants. It covers the first, second, and third person. And so what I'm kind of getting here, if I just look at the big pattern, is that these crises are a crisis of somehow feeling disconnected from self, from other, and from the world, you know? Yeah. So, so, and then, so what we want to do, the, the basic, you know, move then is to get reconnected to yes. a new self, that, which is, a, you know, a, 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 something we didn't know before. Novelty comes online. So there's a new Jeff that I get in touch with. And then there's a new level of relationship that I have with the people I love, you know, if God willing. And then there's a new way of understanding the world and, uh, you know, our life. And that's, you know, gets us to the next stage. And that's a successful resolution of a midlife crisis. And it might take years. It might take 10 years. It helps to know what we're doing, though. Yes. Yeah. There's, so, there's something that you said to me a few years ago that I thought was, has stayed with me. And uh, it, was when, it was when you were starting the Daily Evolver and I was, I was um, uh, putting together my School of Love lecture series and, on, and some other stuff on my site. And you said, Keith, you know, we're hitting a point where we're really needing to put out what we've learned. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. And this, is, this really reflected Eric Erickson, who was one of the first stage theorists um, he developed psychosocial stages of development. Or he said this period of time, 40 to 60s, is a, is a stage where you're dealing with the, 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 the dichotomy, the dialectic between generativity and stagnation. That when we're challenged, and this is back to the hero's journey, that forms a call of some sort. Now, we can collapse into avoiding the call. Yeah, we we know people that have done this. Yes, the alcoholic who doesn't get into recovery and goes, yeah, ends up alone in an apartment while his wife has moved on, yeah. or her husband's moved on, yeah. or the drug addict who's overdosed, or um, you know the person who is, a, is somewhat of a chronic failure at work, continuing to go through cycles of, of chronic failure. 
Um, or just, not, you know, the people who are just deadened, you know, yeah. they're just everywhere. You know, they just stopped. Yeah, they're stagnant. Yeah. yeah. And then now this is where we're going to the lower right. In, 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 in American culture right now, the way that it's set up socioeconomically, there's a really, really wealthy people and there's a lot of people that are poor and there's a lot of people who are service people. And one um, researcher said the top 15% of the service people are going to do really well in the new economy. But the bottom 85% are going to not have wage growth and they're going to struggle. And those struggles tend to dominate their consciousness. And those struggles tend to translate into the midlife crisis. The midlife crisis can be, I can't find housing for me and my children. Mm -hmm. The most stressed people in this, in this culture as measured, you know, if we measure people's stress levels are single mothers in their late 30s and early 40s. And so that's a particular form of midlife crisis that the culture um, should do. You know, and I, I'm a social activist from that perspective. I think that, that we have an obligation from a lower right position, so when people hit the cult, the, that crisis in their 40s, it shouldn't be getting enough food and shelter for you and your kids and childcare and stuff. Yeah, me too. You know, so if we're taking care of those kinds of things, secure, those kinds of security concerns, then if you have a crisis, the crisis has, is a more existential crisis, and those existential crises get resolved more in terms of not just I'm going to be secure with me and my family, they get, they get resolved more in terms of how am I going to be of service to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the more people that are having crises about, about how am I going to be of more service to the world, the better. Absolutely. You know, we, what I want is a whole country full of people when they hit their 40s to go, God, yeah. I'm really feeling dissatisfied and distressed and worried because I want to be of more service to the world. Yeah. Okay, well, that, that's a lot of people you run into in the integral world, actually. I mean, it's a privileged world. These are you know, people who have the leisure and, you know, to uh, the capacity to be thinking philosophically and contemplating life and growth and themselves and stuff. So, you know, it's a privileged group. And yeah. and yet the suffering around, I'm not expressing myself. I'm not, you know, delivering my gift is mm-hmm. as, you know, acute as, you know, albeit at a much higher vibration, a much higher level than, you know, people who are wondering how I'm going to get my next meal. Uh, you know, so that you're, you're right. I mean, we, we want to move into these higher level crises. And so let's talk about that for a second. So say you are someone that has enough food, shelter, resources, and so on. And you're, you're feeling a profound sense of dissatisfaction. Well, let's go back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of your original sense of security of self and security in the world. You know, say you didn't feel particularly secure in yourself unless you were succeeding. Mm-hmm. So then what you do for the rest of your life is you try to succeed your way away from shame, succeed your way away from anxiety. You run into a crisis in your 40s, you go, well, the solution has to be what it's always been. I have to succeed my way out of this. Um, Say you always did well by looking good. I have to look good my way out of this. Say you always did well by focusing on your pain and amplifying your pain so other people came and gave you attention. You know, you were kind of a victim. I have to suffer my way out of this. These basic life strategies at 40, you have enough neurodevelopment, you have enough self-development, you have enough capacity to self-reflect. You can go, you know, it's not going to be a linear experience or basically even a quantitative shift. It's not like, oh, I got to write four more books and then I'll feel okay. It's no, it's a qualitative shift. That tendency to, I got to succeed, I've got to love, I got to pleasure my way out of this, I got to, I got to something, my way out of this. 
that basic supposition is based on a flawed relationship with myself, and I need to heal that relationship with myself. So that all those things, which are good things, come more from a sense of secure connection with self and secure connection with the world. If that's the resolution of the crisis, this person now is making the transition into man of wisdom, woman of wisdom. And always when that transition happens, it's characterized by people being, one, less negatively emotionally reactive, and two, being more generous in the world. Well, so it's not it's, – it's basically growing our way through or forward in that That's, it's not necessarily solving – how do we solve the problem that we're going to fucking die? Yeah, you know, right, right. we can't. And, you know, all of the problems that flow from that. But we can grow into having a different relationship with that yeah. and actually grow into, in the case of dying – getting in touch with the part of us that actually is not going to die, yeah. you know, and that's a relief. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I like that idea of the midlife crisis. It's not about solving the problem as much as it is growing in our relationship to it. Yes. Yeah. And using it as, you know, the Chinese character for crisis and opportunity is the same character. Yeah. Well, 6,000 years of wisdom traditions, you know, get, got a lot of things right. Yeah. Now, that being said, this is a dangerous time. And there's principles. For instance, if you have a sudden impulse to just leave your wife or leave your husband or leave your job, probably it's a good idea to slow it down mm-hmm. and go talk to somebody. You know, I, you know I go talk to a therapist. I'm, I'm a great believer, of course, in talking to a therapist. <laughs> go talk to a therapist. If it's a good idea to leave your wife, your job, or your life today, it's going to be a good idea a couple of months from now after it's processed. Right. But if you have a sudden impulse to stop drinking and go to AA, or, you know, to stop shooting heroin, if you have a sudden impulse to, to tell your lover that you don't want to see her anymore because you want to work on your marriage, if you have a sudden impulse that you want to write a novel about something, it's probably a good idea to do it right now and then yeah. get other people to help you do those things. So the impulses to do, you know, if you have a sudden impulse to stop eating sugar and start exercising regularly, start today. So if you have impulses to stop something toxic or start something really good, do it immediately. If you have an impulse to leave something that's distressing for you but that has served you, evaluate it. And the reason for that is that if you're frustrated in a relationship or if you're frustrated in a job, it, it, first of all, it affects your happiness. You know, unhappily married people are less happy than single people. But that unhappiness is based on resentment. And what resentment does is it blocks self-awareness and it blocks empathy and it blocks our basic relationship with whatever it is we're mad about. And now this is a human capacity. You know, resentment has to block uh, 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 empathy because aggression in human beings is designed to protect us mostly from other human beings. And to do aggression to another human being, we can't be empathically connected to them. And so when we get angry or when we get aggressive, empathy has to stop. And so if you want to, if there's something that's an institution in your life, it takes, makes sense to go into an environment where you can work your way through the layers of resentment and frustration and see what the substance is. Sometimes that job is, is salvageable and even you can use that job to transcend. Sometimes that relationship can go to another level where there can be deeper love and more connection. And we've talked a lot about this around relationship and intimacy and sexuality and so on. When people come in with a crisis, everybody's always urgent. And so sometimes you want them to speed up. No, use the impulses. Yes, go to, go to that AA meeting. Sometimes you want them to slow down. Sure, let's explore your dissatisfactions. You know, and if you're still just as dissatisfied in, in a few months, then maybe we can consider some actions. 
sure, start working out, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. But what really is the key to it is that you're reaching out to another person, a therapist or a friend or, a, you know, a mentor or whatever. And, yeah. and that's, I, I wouldn't just pause and appreciate that because as a kind of an introvert and a, a Enneagram five, it's not my natural thing. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think all I really need to do is get away from people and think this through uh-huh. <laughs> and solve yeah. it and then come back and, you know, uh, ap- apply what I've learned. And I, I think there's probably some value in that too, but what's always actually led me forward is reaching out, I got to say. You know, and, and that reflects, going back to having an integral understanding, that really reflects the, the how, how it helps. That the, the, the strategy of going off by myself, figuring it out, and then taking an action is a superior strategy in an environment where people don't know your interiors uh, intimately and aren't integrally informed themselves. That's a superior strategy. That can lead you up five or six developmental levels. But at a particular point, it blocks your development. And so not only do I need to resolve this problem, I need to go to the deeper issue of how of, of how I conceptualize problems and how I conceptualize solutions. <laughs> Beautiful. And then how and on the second tier, how I conceptualize problems is I'm I'm part of everything, yeah. including the problem. And and the, the, the solution of the, if the solution of the problem doesn't involve some personal transformation on my part, I'm missing something. Well, exactly. I mean, part of my second tier, my conceptualization of the problem is thank you problem for being here, you know, because I know that you have a great, you know, message and learning and a transformational opportunity for me. And this is Sangha. You need friends that understand that. Yeah. You need lovers who understand that. Yeah. And And how how delicious is that when you uh, have that? My goodness. Yeah. Just stop for a moment and be grateful for the people in my life and in your life that that we can share this with yeah. each other, you and me, as well as others. That's right. You know, this is one of the great, to me, uh, changes in my life, discovering the integral community. Uh, I, I felt, wow, I'm in, an, I'm in a community where to a large extent, I can be transparently myself and people really enjoy it. I know. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, they can look at the parts of me that are imperfect and dark and shadowy and all that other stuff point it out with interest and help me heal them rather than be alarmed or threatened by those parts. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what happens is we actually do become less identified with what we now see to be our small self. Yes. You know, this limited time and this, you know, limited by body and history and all that. And we have a, we take a deeper breath and we have a bigger identity. And so we can see it. We can see this Jeff instead of be this Jeff. It'd be, you know, bounded by this small Jeff. And all of a sudden, Jeff becomes interesting and I don't, I'm not mad at him anymore. It's like being mad at a nine. How can I be mad at a nine-year-old, you know, for, for long, <laughs> you know, he's not supposed to be getting it right. He's learning for God's sakes. And that again, just changes everything. You know, uh, this goes back to what I said earlier, that we have a series of crises and every single crisis in our life can change the direction of our life. My, my favorite intelligence researchers are Carol Dweck and Scott Barry Kaufman. Carol Dweck at 11 was in a room where the teacher 
lined up all the kids in order of their IQ. And she was so pissed off about that that she went ahead, <laughs> got her PhD, and did research to show that intelligence is a function of effort and progress. <laughs> Scott Barry Kaufman. She was a- angry as an 11-year-old. She was so pissed <laughs> about that that I it directed that. her life. Scott Barry Kaufman, when he was 12 years old, couldn't get into the gate class because he had a learning disability and it tested out with a low IQ. And he told the counselor, he said, look, let me test again. I'm smarter than that. You know, I've learned how to read since they gave me that test. And the counselor said, no, IQ doesn't change that much over the lifetime. Scott Rysoffman said to himself, well, fuck you. <laughs> Later on, researched intelligence and has the most sophisticated understanding of multiple intelligences that I've discovered. He's my favorite. I like him better than, than Dan Goldman or, or John Mayer, those kinds of those people. He has a more a broader understanding. Hmm. What's his name and, his name's Scott Barry Kaufman. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we'll and check him uh, out. Just human capacity, human capabilities is. This is another thing that happens in in midlife. You know, you find a lot of Olympic athletes that are nineteen and twenty years old that are setting world records. You don't find many Olympic coaches in their early twenties or in their late teens. They're in their thirties and forties and fifties. Why yeah. is that? Because the the, the skill sets, the levels of intelligence take decades to mature and they hit, you know, they're, they're, they're maximizing in your forties. Our, our cognitive capacities are expanding into our fifties. We're becoming, you know, wiser and smarter in most, in most ways. When a crisis comes and our life doesn't feel meaningful to us or it feels stressful beyond belief, for instance, a major depression can be a midlife crisis, an anxiety disorder, uh, a sense of profound, um, uh, identification with the natural world and wanting to help the natural world. At that particular point, we have a lot more resources to bring to bear for transformation. So when people come into therapy, this is an important thing about having a, an integral or orientation in therapy. When people come into therapy, they want to solve the problems and they want to be suffering less and so on. Um, but they also want to grow and go to that next level. And sometimes yeah. it's the therapist's job to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I understand you want to be less depressed and, you, you know, you want your wife to not be cheating on you. And, 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 and I do, you know, or you want to have sex again or, you know, all these kinds of things that come up. Or you don't want your, your son to be in jail anymore. And, and, or, or, you know, it's really hard that you lost your leg in a, in, a, in a, I mean, lots of awful things. And there's a part of you that wants to go to the next level of something. Because we all know intuitively, human beings, we all know that we are God in the world. Yep. We are all incarnations of God. Yes. And we all have to come to grips with that. Yeah, but we do know it, whether or not we know we know it. I always yes. think that Rumi line, grapes want to turn into wine. <laughs> you know, and we do. And that's, so that's built in. You can kind of trust that as a therapist. And so I imagine when you say this to people, there's a part of them that wakes up and they, says, yeah. There's a big sigh of relief. You, you know, this doesn't happen as much anymore the last 10 years, but the first, you know, I've been doing this 42 years. First 25 years I did therapy, people were always scared coming into the session because they were scared that I was going to tell them that they were fucked up in some huge, horrible, you know, that I was going <laughs> to diagnose them, you know, with the psychic equivalent of brain cancer or something. It was like, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, you know for, for, so for decades, one of my first interventions was, you know, people that come to see me almost by definition are healthier than most of the other people out in the world. Yeah. Just the fact that you're in this office talking to me, wanting to grow is a testament to your heart and soul and spirit wanting, wanting to integrate and grow and become you know stronger, better, wiser. And that's possible for you. 
That's not just possible. That's what's going to happen if you keep doing it. You know, and good things are going to come. Yeah. If I know that, then my, my client can share my faith until they develop their own faith. Yeah. And this is the relational aspect, one of, one of the many relational aspects of psychotherapy. Yeah. You know, psychotherapy establishes intimacy very, very quickly. And in that intimacy that you have your utter faith in your client's ability to be more and more and more a pure expression of spirit through their individual incarnation. Well, it may be the first time they've ever been in a relationship with anybody who felt that way about them Sometimes. in their whole life. Yeah. You know, imagine. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and and then the, just that switch from I'm coming here to be fixed. I'm coming here to be put back together the way I was. Yes. Uh, is, it's a whole different paradigm here. Yeah, it's that I'm damaged. I need to be fixed. The, the whole idea of, of psychological health, psych, you know, we're, we're all a bunch of processes. Another crisis that happens in early 40s is a lot of people go, okay, I'm going to feel great when I have the great wife, I have the great kids, I have a great husband, I have the great kids, I have the great job, I have the great house. You know, I have friends. You know, you know I, am, I have a good body or I have whatever. I live in the place that I want. Okay, so they get there and they go, why am I so dissatisfied? Right. You know, what, I feel empty. Yeah. There's emptiness. And so previous interpretations of emptiness was I, I, don't have, I don't have enough stuff. I don't have enough relationships. I'm not having enough fun. I need to have more stuff, better relationships, more fun, better sex, that kind of stuff. Those were the previous explanations for that emptiness. But you have enough wisdom in your early 40s or your 50s or your 60s to go, you know, maybe more of that stuff isn't the answer. Maybe there's, there's, a, there's something else going on. And that something else is a reorganization of, of my understanding of myself, my relationships with, with spirit and with people and with the world. Out of that reorganization comes a, a larger, as you said, sense of, of self. However people want to conceptualize it. Well, and are you saying, am I hearing you say that you're, you're noticing that more people have a more sophisticated view of therapy when they come to you now than they did in the first part of your career? Unquestionably. Yeah. Now, part of that is just, you know, every, well, I started doing therapy at 23, so I had younger clients. Uh, and then, you know, my clients have gotten older as I've gotten older, and, and they've gotten more experience. But even that, the, the culture itself is a, way, is a more psychologically minded yeah. culture. Um, I, I find that a very hopeful uh, thing My myself. I'm, I'm, I, it makes me a hopeful person uh, because I see this. There's a, for instance, midlife crisis. Midlife crisis as a term didn't exist before 1965. And now everybody knows what a midlife crisis is. Yeah, exactly. Del Sheehy wrote passages. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I could go on and on. There's, there's an awful lot of uh, the unconscious. The concept of unconscious forces, somewhat of an alien concept to a lot of people. A lot of people in the 70s, you know, I don't believe in that. You know, professors. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had professors. So it's always, always hard to have a professor that you think is a fucking moron. You're going, what? You don't believe in the unconscious? Yeah. I'm taking a class from you. <laughs> anyway, that's not true anymore. Yeah. Okay, now everybody has a shared understanding, which gives us a, a little bit more. Now, th that being said, there's also an awful lot of, of dangerous stuff going on in the world, and that creates a certain amount of, of helplessness. I don't want to minimize the fact that painful things happen. Yeah. You know, people get sick. People get diseases. They get, they get cancer. They get into car wrecks. They have chronic pain. Um, they lose children. There are very stressful things. You know, 
a couple with an autistic child is twice as likely to divorce when that kid is a teenager. Um, mm -hmm. It's very stressful to have an autistic child. I don't want to minimize the fact that, that resolving, addressing, you know, one couple had to move from Maine to Colorado because the, the pot medication that stopped their little girl from having seizures couldn't be, couldn't be gotten because the culture wouldn't let her, them have that medicine. And they had to change everything to move. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of major things that people have to deal with that are big deal things, real world things. They're resolving that and focusing on that. One of the side effects of that, though, is people tend to get more caring. You know, mm -hmm. Giuliani is a good example. Giuliani was known by to everybody, including the people who worked with him. It's just a raving asshole. And then before 9-11, he became kind of a nicer guy. And somebody asked him once, he says, you know, he used to be really, this, this is before he ran for president, this is, he used to be really an asshole, and you got Mallory, he says, was it 9-11? He said, no, it wasn't 9-11. It was prostate cancer. He said, I had to kind of face my own death. And out of that, I decided that I, I, want, I, I wanted to care more for other people, that that was his crisis. And mm -hmm. so these things happen, and they're a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and, they, and they need to be addressed. You need to take them seriously, be responsible. There's a lot on the line. Yeah. I, I used to think in my 20s and 30s I could heal from any injury. I know now that I can't. And so I've been, I'm more protective of, of my body. I had to have a couple of, you know, serious injuries to teach that to me. And so there's always these, these, these real world, you know, somebody loses their job, they lose their house. That's a big deal. They need to, to establish a certain sense of not just security again, but a certain sense of uh, self-respect. That, you know, your, your sense of a profound shame that goes from going from one level to another level. Um, you know, like the, the Japanese businessmen who lost their jobs um, in the 80s, and he would put on a suit and leave the house and go and sit in the park in their suit all day because that was better for them than staying home and kind of surrendering to the fact that they couldn't find work. I mean, humans are very sensitive and, and emotions are very powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the impulse, the, the amount of suicide that comes out of the armed forces is another good example. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, these are powerful forces. Yeah. And, and so we, I li we like to talk about this, the transcendent aspects of resolving these things. But, you know, it's dangerous. You know, it's a, you're going through a jungle and it's a beautiful jungle and you're heading in great directions. But, you know, you've got to pay attention to where you're putting your feet. You need to get a lot of support. And there's a lot of hazards. And this is another thing about the midlife crisis. Take it seriously. You know, it's not, it, it's not a small thing. No. It's not a small thing if you want to reorganize your life. It's not a small thing if you want to profoundly change your family or change your body. It's a big deal thing. There's a lot on the line. Yeah. And now in the process of doing that, you're going to have unexpected discoveries about yourself because that's what development is. That's what evolution is. Mm -hmm. It's a creative advance in the novel. I mean, what, what I'm thinking about as you talk about this, because it's definitely having an effect on me. You know, there are real problems uh, and, yeah. you know, real losses that people have. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I don't want to think that wrong, th bad things ought not be happening to me. There's also, I want to relieve myself of the idea that I need to be getting this right mm -hmm. somehow, you know. So that that helps me when I when I realize that it's not about getting it right. It's right. about I don't know what how, what words I could put it into, but it's about taking the the most in, intelligent, uh, you know, resourceful, heartfelt next step you can, and let that you know reveal what it reveals. And take the next step after that, and after that, and after that. 
and let go of feeling like you're in control or that you're even responsible in a certain way. Right. I mean, we don't even, we can't, we don't can't predict confidently, you know, 100% that we're going to be alive in 10 minutes. Right. So there's two parts to that. One, what do we need to do? Just do the best we can. Yeah. Let ourselves off the hook. Let ourselves off the hook and try to get better at things. You know, and that, and that's, you know, that's not, we all have access to that. Yeah. You know, we, we can all, if I stumble over the same step four times, the fifth time, if I learn a little bit, I'm less likely to stumble over it. And if I'm patient, by the 10th or 15th or 20th time, I'm not stumbling over that step. Yeah. So the first thing is, yeah, all we got to do is do the best we can and learn from our experience and be open to influence from people who love us. Now, people who love us, most of the time are going to give us good input. Yeah. Good, and, you know, and, and paying attention to that is a big deal. And then, so now that brings us to the second part. The second part is, who am I? Am I a person that receives influence from people that loves me? And am I a person that does my best to do right? Now, if I really identify myself as a person who does his best to do right and receive influence from people who love me, I'm a pretty okay person. Okay, my sense of self is pretty intact. Now, that, that sounds really simple to people who feel that. To people who have never felt that, mm-hmm. that just seems like the, uh, the dream that can never happen. That's the relationship with self. Over 95% of people in prisons were abused as children. Hmm. Over 95%. 40% of people with bipolar disorder were abused as children. Their nervous systems were set up to not have a coherent sense of self. And, you know, you, when you don't get it in the first two or three years, which are critical periods where you're supposed to get it, it's a lot of trouble and a lot, a lot harder to get it later on. Now, we can, but after a while when we do, here's what you notice. If I see somebody out there who's doing his best to do right, learn from experience, and doing his best to receive influence from loving people, I admire that person. You know, I find you do that. I admire you, okay? And so if, I'm not, if I do it and I'm not admiring myself, what's going on? Right. Okay? There's something about the way I've organized my psychology that I have a double standard in terms of how I deal with the world and deal with myself. That double standard is working. That's not fair. And nervous, human nervous systems are aware of the lack of fairness. That I might protest that lack of fairness by being hostile or by being dismissive or by being cynical or by doing all the negative things people do when they feel like the world's unfair. Or I might resolve that lack of fairness by saying, hmm, I need to reevaluate who I am. Now, I'm going to give you a really cool exercise. Everybody who's listening to this, this is a great exercise. You're going to love this. And it's really simple. It's one of my, you know, it's like the gratitude exercise. Totally simple exercise changes love. This guy was doing research about people, getting people to have willpower to do things. And, and he had people, for some reason, he had people say to themselves, you know, go to the gym or Keith, go to the gym. He found that when people address themselves by name, you know, in their inner dialogue, they were five or six times more likely to do the good thing. Hmm. If you say, Jeff, go to that party. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go to the party. I want to stay home. Jeff, put on a shirt and go to the party. Okay. You're more likely to go to the party. Well, that's fascinating. From even a developmental view, we can see that, you know, a lot of development is where subject becomes object. So instead of just I, 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 which is I'm the subject, I'm seeing this Jeff is the object. It's, it's something out there. Uh, and um, that gives me a bigger space. Who's the I that is seeing this Jeff? It's a bigger I. And I, that's fantastic. 
And I, here's my su- supposition, because this is just the beginning. I'm sure he's getting funded to do more research and more research will come out. But, you know, the, the take home message is you want, to, you, tell, you want to do better at something, address yourself by name to do better. Here's what I think the case is. We grew up resisting authority because we didn't trust authority in a variety of ways. We didn't trust our parents when they were distressed, and so we resisted them. We didn't trust, um, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, the other authorities because they had their own agendas. Okay? We didn't trust them, so we had this, this habit of resistance. When I say, Keith, you know, you know, go do the errand, go to the drugstore and get the prescription, Keith. The person who's talking to Keith is, first of all, by definition, a wiser Keith, telling Keith to do a good thing. And the Keith that's listening, you know, that's clearly not, you know, an archetypal anxious father trying to bully or mother trying to bully him or, you know, or school administrator trying to give him shit. No, that's Keith who loves you. He's yeah. telling you to go. So I think that what that does is it heals that relationship with power and authority that becomes wounded throughout development. Because most of us do not have a consistent relationship with authority, either in our family or outside of our family, where we're clear that that, that authority is a wise, caring entity that has our best interests at heart. Yeah. So you simultaneously activate that part of you, Keith, go to the, and you, the part of you that feels wounded and resists it doesn't resist as much. Yeah. So, so this is a great exercise. Everybody do it all the time. No, it's fantastic. Great things happening. Yeah. And it's interesting how, we both said basically the same thing. There's this bigger Jeff, there's this bigger Keith. Yes. And you see it as a healing of authority of, of authority issues because you had authority issues. I sure did. <laughs> I didn't so much. So I'm trying to think, you know, yes, that's true for me too. Everybody had an agenda and I knew it. But for me, it's it actually lets me out of the sort of uh, black hole of myself. I think as, you know, an introverted guy, it just breaks me out of, of my shell, you know, of, of the center of gravity of my own uh, identity, a smaller identity. So I don't know how we look at these things, well, but, think- but it's, it's clearly, you know, accessing a bigger, wiser self that we know we can trust. Yeah. I, and, I, and exactly. submitting ourselves to it. Yeah. The Jeff that's saying, Jeff, do this, is your bigger, wiser Jeff. And we all know, this is back to states, the more we spend time we spend in particular states, the more likely we are to go to those states. Those states all involve neural networks that when we enter them get more myelinated, they get more robust. And, and, when, we, and when we enter them, and, we, and also if we don't enter them, they, they actually deteriorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a study done on therapists and contemplative practice. Therapists who did a contemplative practice were more empathetic. But therapists that had done contemplative practice and then had lapsed and weren't doing their contemplative practice anymore, their empathy scores dropped. <laughs> it was really a use it or lose it situation. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Makes me want to do more contemplative practice. Yeah. Well, just tell Jeff to do good. Tell I'm going to tell what? Jeff to do more contemplative practice. <laughs> Jeff, do more contemplative practice. Jeff, Jeff do, I'm going to do that right now. Jeff, you do Jeff, that. Jeff, meditate. Yes. Well, what fun, as always. So is there anything we're missing here, Keith? Do we get this all straightened out? About midlife crisis. (laughs) Uh, Just to emphasize the relational aspect of it. Yeah. You know, that that, the way through is going to be more connected to yourself and to other people. Yeah. The way through is, is going to be taking care of the immediate situation, but also feeling more of a sense of compassion for the world. So you don't discount real issues, you take them on, you take them seriously. 
But recognize if you take them on and if you decide that you're going to do your best with them, that something good is going to happen. Yeah. It's unqualifiable. It's up in left quadrant, but it's going to be good and you'll know it when it happens. Yeah. And, then, and by the way, people out there, if you're having a midlife crisis or if you're approaching a midlife crisis or if you've had a midlife crisis and all of a sudden you think about uh, one day you're walking out in nature or you're, or, you're, or you're waking up or you're going to sleep or you're in the shower and you go, wow, I feel different. You know, I feel a little bit more loving. I feel a little bit more compassionate. I feel a little bit wiser. I want you to remember Keith and Jeff shrinking the pundit when we we told you so. Yeah, <laughs> this absolutely. is going to happen. Yeah, well, that's this it. Is what we're talking it's about. It's a great thing when you sort of get evolution and that we are growing and evolving beings that we can actually trust that. It's just to me shockingly cool it that is. we can direct our own evolution and accelerate it. Yeah, and it's just it's shocking to look at the graph of evolution to the point that self-awareness now, great quantities of people in relationship with each other. We're yeah. not doing this alone. Yeah. In relationship with each other, we are accelerating our individual evolution as well as the evolution of our species. Yeah. There, there's an interesting thing, one last thing about this that, that, that I find interesting. A recent guy studied seven species, domestic and wild. Macaque monkeys, chimpanzees, Rats, dogs, cats, and um, there was something else. Over the last 40 years, he studied, I think, 10,000 different individuals in seven species. And he found that all of them had a similar characteristic. They were all becoming more obese, all hmm. of them. Extra muscular fat was being accumulating out in the wild. You know, chimpanzees were their, their diet and their exercise. And he concluded that what this was, was a physiological response to the environmental stressors of the modern age. Now, what this reminded me of uh, is, uh, is something that happens with bacteria called hypermutation. If you take a bacteria and you put it in a stressful environment, put a toxin in it, the bacteria will um, go into what's called hypermutation. And proteins will be generated in, in, in the bacteria that will begin to create mutations in genes. Then there'll be lots of mutations in genes until one of the mutations solves the environmental problem. Hmm. And when that happens, then that becomes a characteristic of that bacteria. It's called hypermutation. As above, so below. I think that's what's happening now with consciousness in this planet. I think there's a lot of stresses on consciousness, mm -hmm. and not just from environmental toxins, I think from stimulation and so on. And I think there's going to be more crises and more midlife crises as a result of this extra stress. But as a result of it, I think consciousness is doing a, a form of hypermutation mm -hmm. where there are new forms that are arising and a mm -hmm. lot of them are catching our, our imagination. Yeah. For instance, the integral is one of those. Well, I was just going to say, integral just gives us a whole new proliferation of options of what we can actually see and be aware of in the interiors and the exteriors and the spiritual and the scientific, the East and West and you know, archaic, modern, postmodern, the whole thing is available to us in a new, uh, in a whole new way. If you're going through a crisis, a midlife crisis where, you, and remember in midlife, you've developed a lot of cognitive capacities. There's a, there's a robust sense of self, no matter how wounded you've been, you know, there's been a lot of development. If you can go more deeply into an integral understanding, this really, really helps. Yeah. That added level of expansion, you know, helps guide you through the crisis and into the reorganization on the other side. 
and into the other relationships with yourself and with other people. And that further service that you're going to do to the world, it's going to happen. And so, yeah, that's the final thing I wanted to say. Well, right on. Thanks so much, Dr. Keith. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, we learn so much. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you, yeah, too. Yeah, man. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you for uh, writing us and pressing that speak pipe button. Uh, we'll uh, respond to more questions and so forth as we continue this Shrink in the Pundit series. For more on Dr. Keith Witt, go to drkeithwitt.com. For more on me, Jeff Salzman, go to dailyevolver.com, and you can find me also on Integral Life. Thanks again, everybody. Take care. Goodbye, everybody.